cliffcentral.com. Let us turn our attention now to the great Jean-Jacques Cornish, who's online. He's ready to tell us about what's going on in the continent of Africa, our own continent, and we're going to catch up with him in African Analysis. It's brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School, where we look at what's happening around us. Here he is, Jean-Jacques Cornish. How are you, sir? Bonjour. I'm very well. You know, I'm glad to hear you speaking about being parsimonious. I walked past a woman <laughs> shaking a Salvation Army box. Yes. And I realized there will be no salvation in our world. Yep. And besides that, I'm anti-military, so I just walked straight past her. I didn't put my two bucks into the box. I don't feel as guilty now after hearing what you just said. Well, you know what? There's charity and then there's... Um because I think charity is really important, Jean-Jacques, and I think in this country we have lots and lots of very worthy causes, and there isn't a streetlight that you go past in Johannesburg or Pretoria or even Cape Town where you aren't uh, immediately made aware of need and of the, the, the desperation of so many people in this country. But when you hear these billionaires say that they're going to solve huge big problems that have no actual end point uh, or victory conditions – you know it's just it's just hot air right it's it's like the hot air that's coming out of cop 27 at the moment again you see all these people flying in there in their private jets flying there in these huge um putting enormous carbon miles on the earth and then they're going to sit there and tell Jean-Jacques Cornish Gareth Cliffs and Pimem Tetwa what we must do how we must separate our rubbish and how it's our cars that are causing all the trouble I mean, it seems to me like just pure hypocrisy. But do these people actually say they're going to cure it? I think Bill Gates has spent – I'm a malaria bore, having nearly died of it myself, so I follow yeah. that. Right. What he's given to fighting malaria. He's never said, I'm going to beat it, but he certainly said, I'm going to put billions into trying to beat it. And, and I mean, I have to say, I admire him for that. That is a good example of something that he has done that has made a difference. But when you say you're going to solve inequality, how do you do that? Oh, no. Oh, okay. That is. You know. <laughs> so, but I'm glad you brought that up a, because, because, you know. With a bash if you've got a few, Bob. But, yeah, no, it's it's not something you're going to do. I accept that. Well, well, talking about the rich and the poor and people solving problems, one of the reasons that COP is particularly interesting to us is, first of all, it's happened in Africa. Of course, it happened in Durban before, so it's not the first time. But it's happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is this amazing five-star resort area along the Red Sea in Egypt, and everybody's been flying in from all over the world. But what they've come up with is some kind of scheme where, again, they've made it look like we here in Africa and the global south, as they're calling us now, are hanging around with begging bowls, asking for money. Even our own president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was over there um, with his begging bowl. And we're taking money from all these other countries who – it has to be said, can scarcely keep themselves warm this winter because of uh, the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And they've apparently come up with some arrangement where, guess what, uh, Africa is going to be given X amount of money, South America, Y amount of money, and other parts of the world. Shame, we feel sorry for you, so here's some money. It almost it feels a little patronizing, or am I being unkind? Well, you know, they promised that sort of money last time and the time before. It's actually meeting those promises. And I think that's what's happening in Sharm el-Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh is a fantastic resort. I, I attended a summit there. And it's people by uh, summiteers when they get there. But for the rest, it's Russians, uh, <laughs> Russian men who look very threatening. 
Russian women who are absolutely gorgeous until they, I don't know what birthday it happens when suddenly they put on 40 kilograms and look like, uh, you know, babushkas. And uh, uh, it's real, but I mean, you should see the place. It really is something. And you can see it being locked down. This uh, cop is the, is when I think they're going to try, but to the extent that they can, hold people's foot to the fire. I mean, I, I attended the Durban summit or COP and promised I would never again attend such an event because as journalists, we are duped. We are told we go there and we sit there. And then on the last day, we stop the clock and talk about the dramatic uh, uh negotiations underway Mm -hmm. and then finally in the early hours of the following morning when we should be going home we announce a dramatic uh uh, agreement some some breakthroughs some some in this case the the canadians and the canadians who have always been the kind of do-good guys in my Mm -hmm. years at the united nations telling us what we should be doing it was the canadians who signed up agreed went home and and barely had the foreign minister's jet touched the tarmac that they'd broken their promises. And that has happened again and again. And we as the journalists were simply duped into saying there'd been a dramatic breakthrough. And it's just theater. And I'm sad to say I think that's what's happened in the subsequent COPs. It seemed at the Paris COP that there were commitments to uh, maintaining uh, or reducing global warming or maintaining it at a level of 1.5 uh, on pre-industrial levels, well, that hasn't happened. And now we learn that even if they do keep it at that, we're in for significant global warming. It's sad. But to get to this COP, it's very interesting that uh, human rights, which is in a parlor state in uh, in Egypt, Egypt, that is now being looked at, and we have this Egyptian, a British Egyptian, dual national, Allah Abdel Fattah. He went on hunger strike, and on the day that COP opened, he stopped drinking water. In other words, he was ready to, you know, shuffle the mortal coil at this point. However, we now learn that he's there is proof of life that he has, and he's written to his mum and said, okay, I'm drinking water again, and there's great relief at that. But the fact is, all of these human rights, all these dissidents and human rights activists who are being persecuted, jailed, are getting unprecedented coverage. And so that, for, That's for that news. alone, it, it, it's worth something that, that it's happened. You know, I agree with uh, with your last st- statement here on this humanitarian situation and the human rights issue around dissidents. And, you know, <laughs> everyone in Egypt would have been a dissident if we still had the old president in place, the president who at the time of the Arab Spring, whose name escapes me for the moment, you'll remember who it is, JJ, because you know these things. Um, the, everyone was a dissident under him. Then, of course, we had the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood take over. Now they're not Mohammed Morsi. I was there for that election. Right. He won it fair and square. There we go. And and now, of course, they they're becoming as intolerant as the old dictators. Well, we had you know, Abdel Fattah al Sisi. He actually overthrew him. In fact, got red carded by the United, by the African Union for that very thing. But uh, then they had another election. Again, I was an observer there. He won that election. Uh, Egyptians thought better of what they'd done with uh, the, uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now he's there, but he's really, really, and I've been there invited by him to the opening of the new Suez Canal. And uh, the human rights in Egypt are, are, are absolutely despicable you know egypt for example its relation with the united states 
is very interesting. You know that Egypt gets more money from the United States than the rest of Africa combined. Because mm-hmm. it's a, why it's strategically, so strategically important. Believe, they believe, you know, they, yeah. the way they see the, the Middle East and, and, and in terms of Israel and so on, who's mm-hmm. just their sort of uh, uh, proxy in the Middle East, you know, that it's, it's, it, the, the Middle East is a very, 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 very you know, uh, difficult under, area to understand. Just to talk about this this climate uh, conference again, I, I I'm I'm not uh, one of those people who'd be opposed to anything that makes the world a better place, and especially those things which we can do to mitigate human harm to the environment. But every time I see one of these climate protesters, whether it's the guy who tried to egg King Charles the other day, or all these um, blue-haired people who are pa- who glue themselves to walls in museums and throw soup on paintings, precious artworks. Every time one of those climate change activists does something like that, it makes me want to switch on every engine I can and pollute as much of the environment as possible. Is it possible that the climate change protesters are so irritating that they're actually having a negative effect on the cause? Well, you know, I... <laughs> Yes, I, I'm sure that is a case, and and I think it, when they strategize, they would think that every time uh, human rights activists, you know, uh, interrupt a, a fox hunting uh, party or or or, yeah. or or take some you know dramatic action to free uh, animals that are trapped and so on, yes, there is a backlash. But I think you know direct action, and and you know there here we were directly acting against apartheid, taking. Uh, quite extreme measures, not violent measures. Uh, you know, the fact that it set set some people against us. Well, you know, fair dues. I mean, that yeah. would happen. And, I'm, I'm, and uh, I'm just, I think we're getting. Uh, I, 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 I'm all for direct action, but you know, where we are at one, you and I, and that is that sometimes we have, and and the United Nations is such an institution where people say, "What the hell are they doing?" Yeah. And whenever there's a real crisis, "What the hell are they doing?" They're simply the sum of their members, mm-hmm. and to have the United Nations, I believe, is better than not to have it. But it's a and, hugely and, and, that, and, and, that, and and so to have a cop is better than not to have it. Well, but I do believe that they should say, "Well, why should we have more? Why should we have more?" Uh, lobbyists for the carbon burning companies Mm -hmm. than actual delegates from the countries that are threatened by it. Uh, Let's change that. Why should we have people arriving there in their private jets, you know, befouling the, the, the atmosphere, Surely that should be banned. Yeah, too. but we, you can't, uh, you so, can't ask so these we questions. Fine tune it, but mm. you get into such trouble if you do. And, and I, I agree with you, like, you know, better to have some, global body that's trying to prevent world war three but i i think the un has been absolutely and completely silent and useless on this russia ukraine question for example which is one of the areas maybe they could have been helpful you don't hear a peep i don't even know who the secretary general is because he's made so little of a noise around this particular issue and we see lots of situations here in africa too where the au or the un may have been helpful I mean, there are questions that we've got to address now. We've got to talk about Mozambique quickly, and then we'll also get to the DRC in Rwanda, because these things are issues where these supranational bodies should be helpful. Instead, they just create more talk shops where nothing happens. You've spoken about these yourself. You've been present at some of them. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we have on. We spoke about. We are going to speak about Mozambique, where they're starting, interestingly, to ship gas. Mm-hmm. You know, 
No, Mozambique wants to be one of the greatest gas suppliers in the world. Right. We have these two countries, Mozambique and Algeria, and everybody's looking at, towards Africa for that to, in, in effect, replace the uh, so, uh, Russian gas that uh, that people are not wanting to buy mm-hmm. because of the Ukrainian invasion. But they've sent uh, a British cargo ship has taken the first shipment of gas, and President Philippe Nussi is calling it historic. Well, it is historic, of course. Uh, and they've got this offshore plant. It's the Italian one, not the French one, any. Uh, we don't know what the final destination of that gas would be. It would be very interesting to see where it actually lands up. But, uh, you know, the, and, and the, along the Cabo Delgado, that northern area of Mozambique, that insurgency, five-year insurgency has left 4,000 people dead and hundreds of thousands of people displaced. Mm-hmm. And, and the African Union certainly hasn't been able to do much. The SADC, the regional grouping, has now put some troops in there. And Rwanda has got itself involved for some reason, I think buying favors in, in a sense. But there are European countries that are saying, well, we should help the Rwandan forces there, which rather surprises me because, uh, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm very, very cynical about what happens in Rwanda. I think people that admire Rwanda should look at its uh, really, really abysmal uh, human rights state and the fact that, you know, their president actually uh, has his uh, political opponents killed before you start admiring a country. Right. Couldn't agree more. But that's good news for Mozambique. And, uh, Very good. And, and obviously not such good news for Rwanda. But the, the DRC, you know, continues to be this this kind of – this thing where people almost want to look away the whole time. It's, it's, it's just, it seems ungovernable. And every time they make a little bit of progress, something happens that retards that progress. And of course, we know Rwanda's probably a bad actor in that situation. Um, what about, what about the AU? How's the AU doing that old AU that we spend so much time and money trying to establish? And then we, that we obviously talk about whenever we can, but nothing ever gets done there. Is, who's in charge there at the moment? Who's got the, Who's got the chair now, JJ? And what are their priorities? Because this is exactly where they should be involved. Well, I mean, at the moment, it's still a Senegal that's got the chair. <laughs> but in, in this case where we're having peace talks between uh, Rwanda and the DRC, a resumption of them, and that will happen on the 21st, that's next Monday, Uhuru Kenyatta, the Pro, uh, former uh, Kenyan president, he is mediating those. He's arriving at, on Sunday to start talks. And uh, the, it, again, it's not the AU that is doing this, but the regional grouping. In this case, it's the community of East African states who are trying to get that. You know, they're, they're to and fro there. The Rwandans blame uh, the Congo for supporting uh, Hutu rebels in, in Rwanda. Uh, the Congo r- maintains that uh, Rwanda supporting M23 and those are Tutsis inside of the Congo. And uh, there's been fighting. Uh, I've been to the Congo many times again as election observer. And the fighting is now near Goma, which is the capital in the east. Right. And that's really on the border effectively with uh, both uh, Uganda and uh Rwanda and uh, the fighting is right nearby and uh, effectively uh, the support that Rwanda is giving to the M23 is 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 deadly absolutely lethal for uh, the DRC so we hope that they can make some progress there but again um, because any, uh, any chance know, any got, chance there, there are eight uh, neighbors around sorry sorry any chance that the AU may make a difference here for once well, you know, not really, because the, the one thing about the AU that that really does cripple it is that 
very some of the countries don't even pay their dues right and when they can't put soldiers they can't put boots on the ground because they just don't have the money to do it so if they need to put in a peacekeeping force uh they they have to get uh it it sponsored and paid for by either united nations or by uh development partners so there's oh. the whole issue of african solutions to african problems means african solutions to african problems you know those solutions paid for outside of the au and, th- and until that can be fixed you know the the concept is is yeah. uh, n- not really doable shut it down it's doing nothing i'm sorry tabombeki and olisagon obasanjo you guys had a great idea here it was a noble thought but clearly it's just it's pointless without teeth what does an organization like this do except drink tea and expect people to um to, to, to pay attention to its occasional press releases. It's really not very, very use, useful, helpful. Let's talk about um, just one other thing around this because someone asked a question here, JJ, and you might know the answer off uh, the top of your head. Elon Chief Twat says, <laughs> and what is happening with the U.S. troops in Somalia? That's a good question. I mean, what is happening in Somalia, full stop? We have lots of Somalian refugees and uh, emigrants from Somalia who live here now in South Africa as immigrants. What's going on in Somalia? Is there, is there any end in sight to their troubles? No, there, there isn't. And, you know, when you spoke about two steps forward, one step back, mm-hmm. it, that you see in the Congo, you see that in spades in, in Somalia. It's really the country of heartbreak. Every time uh, some progress is made, Al-Shabaab, the terror group there, has been driven out of the cities. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come in, you know, with a with a truck loaded with explosives and blow it up outside of an international hotel. Uh, and, and, and so that situation is there. But right now it is the drought that is driving people away. So, I mean, the two things that are, are really decimating the continent are the climate, which is drought, and uh, the conflict. And they have both of those in Somalia. So they're driving uh, literally hundreds of thousands of refugees into Kenya, and, and, and Kenya cannot really take many more. So these are people that are, and they're moving more and more and more because people simply don't have anything to eat in Somalia. The country is on the brink of famine and there's been warnings about that. And then they go again to the United Nations and say, we need, we have to get, uh, some food. And the United Nations people, the big, big powers are saying, well, yeah, okay, well, uh, we'll give it a thought. We, we just got to sort this, uh, Ukraine Russia thing out first. Yeah. And, you know, so there are other priorities. And the people, uh, last time 250,000 people died of, of hunger. Uh, the last time they, w- there was famine in, uh, Somalia. And we are on the brink of that again. Well, I don't know why we talk like this no, because, no. you know, I tried desperately, desperately. To bring a bright note to this crossing, starting. No, I know, and you have. Starting with the Mozambique and shipping gas. No, and now you, we have. You know, you oh, always, you always do bring a good story, but the, the, the truth is that there are some issues that we do need to look at. We can't hide our heads in the sand like ostriches, and you are, you're our contact point for figuring out what's going on here. I think it would be really interesting to have the AU account for itself. Like, actually, let's see how much it costs. Let's see how many people are involved in it. Because these big, bureaucratic organizations that that can't even do what they're actually meant to do, which is, I mean, the UN's major purpose in the world and the AU's major purpose on this continent is to help where there's conflict, right? That's And to prevent all-out conflict. It just seems to me that, again, these guys are doing themselves no favors by actually doing what they're there to do. 
Instead, they've created like um, sheltered employment for just thousands and thousands of people who consider themselves to be, you know, global actors and activists, and actually they do nothing. But it's and interesting if you talk, to talk about, about. Goal, goalless um, or, or, or goals that cannot be attained. Yeah, they have a lot of debating in the African Union about Agenda Twenty Sixty. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, what's the point? You're not going to be around. And, you know, and they talk about this and, you know, uh, I can commit to doing all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, I could, I could, <laughs> I could commit to having South Africa win the Cricket World Cup in 2060. <laughs> well, maybe that would be pushing it a little bit. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, JJ. It's always very good to hear from you. And thank you for your, your efforts to make, um, you know, the, 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 the crossing that we do on a Tuesday, every second Tuesday, that much more positive. And you have found some really good stories for us and you will continue to, I'm sure, because there are little, little pinpricks of light coming through, uh, the, this, this dark sheet that's been, um, that's been so often pulled over the stories that we, we cover. And at least you bring us some positive ones. So thank you very much for that. JJ Cornish and African analysis this morning. He'll be back again soon, and we'll cover some more interesting stuff off the continent. It's brought to you by the Johannesburg Business School. And well done, Mozambique. Um, as JJ said, that's a very good story. Starting to ship gas to Europe, exports will go up, and the country will do better as long as the government there doesn't keep all of the money for itself, because that's what happens so often. So let's see if we can get that story to have a happy ending as well. Cliffcentral.com.